Millennials like socialism. Millennials like socialism. Millennials like socialism. Millennials like socialism. 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 Democratic socialism. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. You heard it here first, folks. Apparently, millennials love them. Some socialism. That was reported in Salon.com this past week. Uh, And some startling news that may come as no surprise to many of us out there. But apparently, some millennials aren't saving for retirement because they don't think capitalism will exist by then. And this sort of maps on to the overall piss-poor economic prospects of most millennials and some you know, Gen Xers and baby boomers out there uh, alongside the worst of the millennials. Uh, don't want to play generational politics here for sure, but statistically anyway, millennials are bearing the brunt of the latest economic and political crisis that we are facing. Uh, so a lot of them are pitting their hope for their future and the future of society and radical social change. That is more specifically socialism. And again, that will come as no surprise to my audience. Uh, Many of you have been brought in this direction uh, from the latest upsurge in socialist politics following uh, the Hillary Clinton campaign, the Bernie Sanders movement, and Trump. Many of you are OGs and you've been in this for quite some time, but it'll still come as no surprise to you because you've witnessed this from the inside of the left. In any case, it's worth thinking deeply about where these uh, piss-poor prospects come from and uh, how we might turn those around. So my guest this week, Michael McCarthy, is going to help us unpack the degeneration of our social safety net, most specifically as it relates to pensions and retirement savings plans. Michael McCarthy is a sociologist at Marquette University, and he has a book out on the topic. It's called Dismantling Solidarity. It's out from Cornell University Press in 2017. We're going to talk more explicitly about that book and the strategic implications thereof. But before I bring you this great interview with Michael McCarthy, I want to do an extended funding pitch this week. I apologize for all of those who find these unbearably obnoxious, but they are a necessity in today's capitalist society, particularly given the fact that this podcast does not, has not, and never will accept money from anyone who would influence our agenda. So we need your support to stay independent and to, more importantly, enhance our offerings. Because I think you all know me by now, and I would rather live in a cardboard box than sacrifice my political principles for any reason, even for no money. Uh, But certainly for money, I would never sacrifice my political principles. I think you all know that by now. But we need your support. Uh, We want to expand our offerings into 2018. I've got some really exciting news coming just around the bend by way of a little teaser. It's going to be some new voices on Dead Pond and Society very, very soon, but we need your support to make that a reality. So whether or not you love what you hear on a weekly basis or you hate my guts and you want to hear some other voices on here, <laughs> either way, we need you uh, to uh, support the project. It's kicking off everywhere. You know, the Oklahoma teachers are on strike. The Kentucky teachers are on strike. Uh, educators in the UK and Canada in South America, uh, 
are, are, are speaking out against this neoliberal hellscape. They are the cutting edge of the fight back, I think, that we're about to witness in the coming years uh, and that we have witnessed over the years. But we really need a different kind of strategic orientation to turn this raw energy into a meaningful alternate political agenda. And DPS is uniquely situated to bring on guests on a weekly basis and, uh, and even more often than that, I would say, more frequently, we want to aim to have more frequent episodes, uh, new co-hosts, new guest hosts, and we want to cover more topics. I'm constantly getting suggestions for show topics that uh, are excellent and important suggestions, both with activists on the ground, um, you know, different kinds of scholars, thinkers, people with different types of experiences. And I badly want to do all of them, but I just don't have the time or the resources. So I'm looking to expand my offerings in 2018, but once again, got to have your financial support to be able to do so. So if you've been on the outside looking in and you want to support the project and get access to dozens and dozens of hours of the spiciest takes uh, that we reserve for B-sides on a weekly basis, click on over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe at whatever level you can afford. And uh, lots of really great stuff coming your way. I'll stop teasing. I know you're all seething with anticipation and ready to boil over with excitement but uh i'll cut you off there unfortunately i don't know go go chew on some ice or something if, uh, if you can't take it all right thanks for enduring that pitch support the project on to the interview michael mccarthy is going to talk to us about pensions socialist strategy and our neoliberal hellscape enjoy Michael is a assistant professor at sociology at Marquette University, and uh, he's going to talk to us about these uh, these topics today. Michael, how you doing, man? Glad to have you. Good. Thanks for having me. So, as I mentioned, uh, this this topic of uh, pensions, uh, retirement, the ability to uh, you know stay alive in this world, which is you know mildly important, I would say, uh, you know, survival. Uh, has been has been broadly undermined and such that Salon just released a piece this week on uh, the 18th. The title is alarming, but also uh, highly relatable content. Uh, that is, some millennials aren't saving for retirement because they don't think capitalism will exist by then. <laughs> <laughs> That's optimistic. It's optimistic, but it's also highly relatable. And it's funny because I saw this, this shared by a lot of friends of mine on Facebook and, you know, it came up on Twitter and, and, uh, you know, it was usually like a pithy, like remark, like same or something like that, like, or, or totally like relatable content. I, I agree with this. That, that is actually socialism actually is my retirement plan. Right. I like that. Um, and it's not just an optimism. It's also just a, it's, it's, it's a way of facing the, uh, facts that, uh, you know, uh, pensions and retirement plans and 401ks. Uh, are, are uh, for many millennials in particular, kind of like a, a funny joke, like, ha ha, that's hilarious, right? Like I'm yeah. in debt. I, I have student loans. I'm, I'm being paid very poor wages. I live in my parents' basement. How in the hell can I contribute to a Roth IRA right now? Right, exactly. Right. And so CNN reported last week that 66% of millennials aged 21 to 32 have nothing saved for retirement. Um, is this in, in broad, uh, you know, kind of 
is this a broad trend that we've seen in uh, retirement and uh, you know retire provisioning over the past uh, several decades? Oh yeah, it's not just it's not just millennials. About half of all families have nothing saved for retirement, and the average amount that uh, people have saved for retirement in the U.S. is five thousand, uh, which w- which won't get you very far. So yeah, it's uh, it's part of a of a of definitely a long trend. You can you can kind of see that if you look at at the market right now, just forty percent of the population have a have a pension plan or some retirement account. So the vast majority of people have nothing, right? Right, they right. they might have a little bit of little sa- saved in their in their savings account, but uh, for the most part, they don't have anything. What they have is uh, is their reliance on Social Security. Right, right, right. Which which is this broad kind of you know mainstream uh, true facts <laughs> that gets circulated about this regarding you know the the way in which Social Security will will just you know it's probably not going to be there when you get to be my age you know so you better put some money away the way that you you know your your drunk uncle will tell you like over like uh, Thanksgiving dinner or whatever right uh, <laughs> well it, I mean you know in the into in the 2008 crisis for people that were going into retirement basically 2008 2009 2010 Social Security was really the thing that saved them it's a uh, it accounts for if you look at the averages, uh, your Social Security check is going to, on average, replace about 40 percent of your um, your your earnings uh, over your life. So, so you're obviously going to take a pay cut when you retire with Social Security, a, a very significant one. But mm-hmm. if we didn't have that, you know, a lot of people would have would have nothing. I mean, literally. I mean, it's not it's not really surprising that that young people have these kind of opinions now. If you if you look at the if you look at the effects of the 2008 crisis. Uh, where you know the stock market plummeted by thirty seven point five percent or something like that, retirement accounts in the U- in the U S. things like four hundred one ks basically saw their investments vanish because these these retirement accounts were very heavily invested uh, in stocks and equities that were hit by the the crash. Look at the amount that was lost between two thousand October two thousand seven and October two thousand eight alone. Uh, it was about two point four trillion. In retirement savings in the U.S., the o- the OECD average was 5.4 trillion, and so there was there was like a massive hit, right? And and since then, you know, like Obama and um, Trump pa- paint the, painted this like really rosy picture about the stock market coming back and and retirement accounts kind of getting back their lost funds, and that's that's kind of true to a certain extent. They have recovered those lost assets, but one that's just an average. So if you look, actually, about 45 percent of of people with a retirement account of some sort have actually seen further losses since 2008. And, and even those folks that actually have made up those losses, well, they're, they're now about five years behind where they should have been with the accumulation of their retirement assets, right? So that means either they're going to have to work longer or that amount that they were expecting to have when they retire, retire is going to be a lot smaller. Well, it's a good thing our, uh, our private uh, for-profit medical uh, establishment in the United States is uh, so good and accessible and efficient uh, to keep these people alive, working long. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Right, right, right. <laughs> Shit, uh, that doesn't work out. I mean, you can see, right? Like, you can see. Uh, my snark is the point to the fact that, like, these are there's some serious compounding problems, some compounding issues. And what I'm, yeah. what, what we're going to try to sell you, dear listener, uh, over the course of the next hour or so, is that you know. Uh, these transformations in pensions, which may seem kind of specialized and dry and maybe not even relevant to your life whatsoever, given that 66% of us uh, haven't even dreamed of contributing to anything like a 401k. 
we're going to try to convince you that these transformations are absolutely essential, not only um, in producing the hellscape that we live in, but also in producing the kind of like constituencies that we're seeing, like rushing into the DSA, uh, comprising the movement around Jeremy Corbyn, uh, you know, uh, Sanders and, and other types of movements and, and strike waves uh, across the world. These are some confound, compounding figures. These are some compounding, uh, you know, uh, issues that are producing a socialist ethos. So it's important that we understand them. Without a doubt. I mean, there's one thing that's that's just absolutely clear right now. It's that the promise of these individual retirement accounts, things like 401ks, which were sort of sold to us in the the 1980s as being sort of more efficient, as being ways in which you could have control over your own future, have been an utter failure. I mean, they, they just drastically underperform more traditional uh, benefit plans, and they have not provided the retirement that they've been set up to provide. So- uh, we're definitely in a situation where, where today uh, people's people's lives, right, their their futures, are are hitched to the market to an ex- extent that it's never been before, and that that promise, that unfulfilled promise of the New Deal, of cradle to grave kind of security, has not only uh, not only been unfulfilled but but slowly eroded um, over the past uh, 60, 70 years. So it's, it's not it's no surprise that that young people sort of feel a certain you know amount of disdain and and just general uh, disinterest when it comes to thinking about pension issues. Right, and so this is in many senses building on my episode with uh, Ed Rooksby last week, in which we argued that uh, you know it's really important that we understand these transformations that occurred and that we have an effective theoretical and strategic orientation to the world that we live in so that we can kind of, uh, you know, have a field of vision and we can strat, you know, know what exactly, know what steps to take, right? In the, in the short term, the medium term and the long term. And so, uh, you know, we hope to lay out over the course of the interview, the broad strokes of these transformations, because they really are, uh, uh, you know, exemplary of the kind of, uh, you know, uh, aspects of neoliberalism and financialization that we need to think about, uh, you know, how to, how to overcome this, right? It's not, Mm -hmm. it's not, it's not readily, (laughs) I mean, these are some really tangled and complex issues and they require a lot of innovative, uh, you know, uh, thinking in order to see our way out of this and not be sort of trapped uh, by them. You can see in many instances where a left government uh, has come to power in the recent uh, past or or will have come to power in the next five to ten years and we'll have to grapple with these issues and it's not a ready-made uh you know outcome that they will be able to overcome these 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 uh tangled uh you know uh, demands of of capital and the state and social provisioning and the welfare system and all of that so let's get into the meat of the argument you brought up roosevelt and the new deal um Folks who listen to the show should know quite a bit about the New Deal. I haven't done an episode explicitly targeting it yet. I promise that's coming because it's really important to know the nuts and bolts of uh, of that and what led to it. But uh, let's talk about the origins of Social Security. Where did that come from? And, uh, you know, what what was that a response to? Well, uh, the Social Security was part of uh, the New Deal package uh, that was that was adopted in well, primarily in 1935. You know, it was really a response to a large uptick in sort of uh, strike activity um, throughout the throughout the U- United States, large uptick in sort of movement by unemployed people, large uptick of movement by elderly people and the sort of um, the spread of these things called Townsend Clubs. They had people getting together and sort of talking about retirement issues and sort of trying to press this upon the state to, to make it make it policy. 
and it was really kind of intended originally, at least, you know, in rhetoric as, as being something that should provide a stable and secure, uh, retirement for people, uh, after they're done working. Unfortunately, what happened, uh, since, since the establishment of, of, of social security is that we've seen, we've seen that program eroded. Uh, we've seen that program infected, if you want to use that word, with more market-oriented schemes, 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 schemes of retirement um, uh, provisioning that are that are very situated in sort of um, financial markets, situated in capitalist markets, and depend quite heavily on on luck. Depend quite heavily on people's strategic ability to invest in the in the in the market, which most people don't have. So the, 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 the kind of, uh, the long story is that we've, we've, we've kind of gone from a, from a moment in which there was a real possibility. You know, the New Deal, I think, uh, is a kind of hopeful period in, in American history where you had a real possibility of a, a sort of a welfare state that sort of was, was robust. But we've gone from that moment to, to the moment now where about, about 45% of retirement income for people actually is, is coming from private employer based pensions. And this is this is actually this is actually quite consistent with our welfare state um, uh, uh, more broadly. Um, if you look at the American welfare state and you kind of compare it to, you know, continental European welfare states or northern European welfare states, um, England and Ireland are a bit more like us. Uh, you'd see that that our welfare state is largely a private one, and when I say that, I mean that it's largely um, employer-provided social programs. That give us uh, the social benefits that we need above and beyond wages. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, things like um, dental care, health care, eye care, child care in some instances, um, oftentimes are things that you get through your work, right? And if you if you kind of compare the U.S. to, to other other countries, we put a much much greater emphasis on on these programs that we get through employment. If you're lucky, I should add. <laughs> if you're lucky, absolutely right, and yeah. and increasingly and increasingly so, less so, right? Like, like uh, fewer and fewer employer employers are providing uh, healthcare, for instance. Fewer employers provide traditional pension fl- funds. Fewer employers provide even four hundred one ks. So yeah, if you're if you're lucky, um, but but that that situation is has major ramifications, right? It's it 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 one. It means that. Uh, there's a very high likelihood that these these um, social benefits are going to be distributed unequally, right? Meaning that oftentimes the people that need the support less, like the better salaried, the higher earners, are going to get better benefits uh, than than people that are in low wage jobs. Uh, but it also it also means that people are are much more dependent on their employers and more commodified, right? It, it, it means that. That if we live in a society in which not only do you get your your wage from your employer, but you also get your family's health care, you also get your retirement, uh, you also get uh, things like childcare, it's going to make you much more dependent on that employer and much more exploit- exploitable, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think we are, are, you know, our welfare state is such that, and again, this is this is kind of true, more true of America, Ireland. England than it is of you know places like Germany, France, and, and Sweden. Our wealth, our welfare state is such that it's it's situated in capitalist markets and sort of it further commodifies uh, uh, people's labor. And that's that how we ended up here, how we sort of got to this point. Uh, you know, this was a long is is a long kind of uh, fraught road that sort of you know goes all the way back to the New Deal. 
right? And it really stands, this, these transformations that you outline, you sort of set up a kind of path dependency there with, with your framing, but your, your work really goes a long way in showing that, uh, you know, there was nothing inevitable about no. these, about these transformations. And, and we as, as, as scholars and, uh, particularly as progressives and socialists need to understand the conditions, uh, that, that helps to produce these transformations if we're going to be able uh, to uh, address them with uh, more comprehensive politics and policies, uh, you know, in, in this in this coming, uh, you know, left wing social democratic democratic socialist wave of politics that we're seeing, uh, you know, across uh, much of the world. So, you know, uh, the book here that we're talking about just came out last year. It's called Dismantling Solidarity, Capitalist Politics and American Pensions Since the New Deal. Uh, that is out from Cornell University Press. Folks should pick that up if they're interested in this argument. You lay it out in great detail. It's highly readable. It is a scholarly work, of course, but uh, it's not one that will lose people, uh, particularly not my audience. Um, and you know that you're you're really guided by that kind of question, that comparative question that you just raised there, uh, which is that you ask why, since the New Deal, was the American retirement security system augmented with market-oriented changes? Right. Uh, the assumption there, the implicit comparative uh, piece there is what you just laid out, you know, as compared to other OECD countries, particularly in Europe, Western Europe, uh, who have historically not uh, seen their um, welfare systems as tied to the market as ours. Yeah. Although increasingly they are moving in that direction. Right. They are being neoliberalized uh, under very similar dynamics. So my listener, my listeners um, in in Denmark, uh, shout out Mm -hmm. to my listeners in Denmark. And uh, Sweden, shout out to Sweden. <laughs> and of course, the UK and other other places that have historically more robust social democratic uh, welfare states, you will recognize a lot of these transformations in your own national contexts. Talk to me about the three phases that you out- outline in your book. Let, let's go by these piece by piece where these occupational plans uh, were first adopted as supplements uh, to social security. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Present. Yeah. I mean, there's basically three kind of kind of shifts toward the market. And if you kind of think about this broad story, it's it's really kind of a subset in the story of of the financialization of the American economy more generally. So I want to I just want, you know, I want your listeners to kind of keep that in mind Mm. that this is really even though we're talking about pensions and we're talking talking about people's retirement security, that security that they're losing in retirement as things become marketized is really part and parcel of a broader story of financialization and the, and the rise of finance capitalism. But basically there's, there's three kind of shifts. The first is after world war II, when there was a, the very real possibility that we could expand social security and, and even uh, universal uh, healthcare was on the table actually as part of the same bill. And instead of doing those things, we actually turned towards employer uh, provided pension plans uh, with traditional defined benefit pension plans. Um, oftentimes they were negotiated between unions and, and employers. Then after we installed those, in the coming years, the way in, the way in which those funds were invested uh, became financialized. They, were in, they increasingly mimicked investment on Wall Street, investment trends on Wall Street. And even though unions tried to control those funds, tried to, tried to use them for more sort of uh, social ends, whether it be house, worker housing or or um, worker projects, things like that. Uh, the, the the control over those funds were sort of taken through law, and they were financialized in critical ways that made them more risky. And then in, in the the third the third thing I look at in the book is basically in the 1970s and 1980s, we've kind of 
we've ditched essentially those defined benefit um, plans that we that we established after World War II, and instead you, we got the rise of what are called defined contribution plans, which are like four hundred one ks and things like that. Um, and these have come to like replace uh, the that earlier system, and and indeed there's much more risk involved for individual workers that that have one of these things puts the onus on the workers to invest. Um, and there's no guarantee that you'll actually have anything when you retire. Uh, if, uh, yeah. In the earlier system, you know, employers were kind of on the hook if, uh, if, the, if the fund was low. And, and indeed, this, the U.S. government has the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, which provided a certain in- amount of insurance against loss of those earlier plans. But, but the, the plans that we have today is, are basically dependent on your ability to invest wisely, smartly. And accumulate a, a large enough uh, a, a nest egg for when you retire. So the book kind of goes through each one of these each one of these shifts and kind of tries to explain why each occurred. The, the broad kind of explanation is that if you if you look at sort of why why we got these sort of shifts towards the market, it was basically a result of policy policymakers, presidents, Congress people, so on right. and so forth. Right responding to capitalist crises in different kind of kind of historical moments mm-hmm. and and sort of trying to govern in ways that promoted capitalist growth and oftentimes often inadvertently the result of their interventions in the in in uh, labor management relations in relations in relations between unions and employers uh was sort of the the was to basically drive the marketization of retirement income forward so I kind of have I kind of have this uh, political explanation for for why each one of these things uh, happened. Right. I mean, listeners will will sort of note uh, from the outset here with that really great uh, summation of your argument and the kind of uh, the arc that you're trying to sort of uh, develop in your book and in your work in general. It's, it really does stand at the intersection of a lot of, of topics, right? A lot of topics that are oftentimes uh, studied in, in relative isolation. I mean, I would add too, which is why I think your work is so important and interesting that you're bringing in labor history, you're bringing in sort of like uh, political economy and capitalist crisis and crisis theory, you're bringing in, uh, you know, certainly the financialization aspect and, and the role of finance and, and, and you know, policy or, or uh, you know, politicians and state managers and personnel and all these other types of things. And uh, which is why it's a really great, uh, you know, test case for uh, the transformations that have produced the neoliberal hellscape that we're all currently suffering under today. Well, not all of us. <laughs> so, right. Some of us. Uh, I, I presume are not doing my pretty listeners. Well. Right. Uh, a certain strata of, of us uh, are, are doing quite well. And that's that's exactly the problem. But let's right. let's let's backtrack and bottom feed for a moment, because I really want to lay out the stakes of this now. I'll not very, sure. because. So few of, of my listeners uh, will have ever had a union contract. Mm-hmm. And even the ones who have uh, will, will, will oftentimes not really be as integrated in how that was developed. And, and there won't be a lot of you know, uh, democratic inputs into uh, the bargaining and all the rest of it. So let's make this as explicit as possible. The story that you tell begins sort of at step one. And, and, and what is kind of already a somewhat compromised and conservative position, which is that uh, the social provisioning is to be provided by your employer rather than the state, Mm -hmm. which produces this kind of paternalistic dependency on your employer for things like healthcare and and retirement and, and all the rest of it. But with that being the case, unlike say in, in the social democratic post-war European theater, 
With that being the case, retirement and medical care become crucial components of compensation and are thus brought into the bargaining process uh, very directly. And they become bargaining chips, right? When you go out on strike or you go up for a, a bargaining a contract year. Um, you know, your, your wages are very important. Uh, ideally back in those days, uh, the, the right to rule, uh, the, the workplace was very important, but you know, pension was a, a really crucial bargaining chip in, in that respect. Mm-hmm. And so really the story that you're telling here, and like, maybe you can elaborate on this, the, the real stakes of this is that when you, when you marketize these forces, when you, when you pull them away from uh, defined, uh, benefit, uh, plans, we're really undermining the 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 basic compensation that we receive for our work. That's really the kind of story that you're telling here. We're actually being paid less as these as these um, we're being remunerated less, far less as as these uh, forces are are marketized and and all the rest of it. Is is that I mean that that, that seems to be the real fundamental kind of impasse here. Yeah, well, not not just that that people are getting paid less, but also that the risk associated with the fluctuations in financial markets are increasingly on the shoulders of workers themselves. You know, that, that, that there's no guarantee, right? We, we, are, we increasingly live in a world in which the, the security or sort of the, the support that comes with public social provisioning, especially the kind that's universal and accessible by everybody, is increasingly broke down such that all that remains is what you can do and how you can do it for yourself, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the, the pension story is, is, is definitely a part of that. And, and, you know, the net outcome is that, yes, people are, people are making, making less if we're including pensions and healthcare as part of the wage. Uh, but, but in addition to that, in addition to making less, there's also, they're also in positions of greater sort of uh, greater risk. There's greater uncertainty about mm-hmm. sort of like what their outcomes are going to be. Right. The risk is individualized instead of placed at the level of the firm or the state to manage. Right. I mean, I, like I said, I mean, you know, at that point, uh, you're, you're right to sort of add some complexity there. I mean, it was a rather, I don't know, kind of, like I said, we're bottom feeding. But I, what I want to really push uh, on my my listeners, what I really want to put to them, for, for those who don't have this kind of like knee-jerk understanding, is that like this is a story about what we are owed for our labor. Now, the difficulty there is it, it never should have been that story. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It never should have been, it never should have been that story. We should like this never should have uh, in, in a real sense. I think if you know Robert Wagner and other folks had their way, uh, this should have been a guarantee provided by the state as yeah. uh, as 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 humans, uh, or more explicitly as citizens, which we're now seeing uh, on uh, have a reactionary turn. I think in the the immigration crisis uh, in social democracy, a lot of them are becoming xenophobes because of that that requirement. <laughs> right, but but in any case. The starting point is really crucial to understand because that's precisely the kind of arrangement that we need to work, I think, in the Sanders moment, in the Corbyn moment, in this kind of left social democratic democratic socialist moment. We really need to work to undermine uh, that fundamentally uh, reactionary conservative position of employer-provided benefits. And so I I just really want to spell that out for people in terms of like uh, thinking through uh, this question. No, that's absolutely right, and I th- and and I think it's also important to kind of recognize that that even though today we think of things like retirement plans, healthcare plans as being like uh, bread and bread and butter union issues, right? Mm. 
things that unions sort of like are all about negotiating, actually in the context of the 1930s and, and, and the 1940s, unions did not want to negotiate over these things. They wanted an expanded welfare state to take care of these things. And that's actually what they pushed for. I mean, there were, cer- there were certain, con- there were some conservative unions, um, uh, like John, John L. Lewis and the United Mine Workers, for instance, who was kind of opposed to large welfare states and kind of opposed to expanding social security and wanted, wanted one of these things totally under the control of, of labor. Uh, but most unions, like the early kind of some of the other early industrial unions, like, you know, the UAW, the United Steelworkers, their leadership, their sort of membership primarily were agitating for a larger welfare state because uh, they understood, you know, they understood that that publicly provided welfare decouples incomes and standards of living from work, right? That that it's sh- that our lives, our standards of living shouldn't be solely determined by what we do at work, right? Should there should be certain there should be certain sort of um guarantees, certain certain rights to 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 health, certain rights to uh, mm-hmm. uh, 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 to uh, comfortable retirement. And they sort of agitated for these in uh, in in 30s and 40s. They obviously failed. But this was first and foremost on on the political agenda, right? And as as you as you're well aware, I'm sure, uh, just to make it explicit for the audience, the the stakes of this is 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 goes far beyond just kind of the moral or ethical argument about what what we as humans uh, deserve. Although that's essential, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, but it's a strategic and, and kind of a, a, a it's an it's a question of working class power and working class capacities, which is at stake here. Because anyone who's ever been on strike for a prolonged period of time will know that after a certain time out on the picket lines, uh, if you or you, you if you or your child, for example, were to go to the doctor, uh, you know the doctor's office is going to inform you that your employer provided health care is uh, no longer active. Right. And and so, you know, they're, they're, the, this is a question of working class militancy and the ability of, of, of workers to use the tool, the essential tool of the strike uh, because the, 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 the you know, the, the capital controls our access to the things that we need to survive. And people are not going to be as likely to stay out on strike and, and, and uh, you know, uh, fight so militantly um, at the point of production. If if they get sick and they don't have access to healthcare during that time, it can be absolutely catastrophic for 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 people with children, with people with chronic conditions, uh, f- folks who are um, uh, have various disabilities and, and so forth. So these are these are really important, and this is where we're going to get into the question of non-reformist reforms as to how to overturn this and how this builds the capacities of the working class later on in the B side. Just kind of to tease that. Um, yeah, no, I, I think I think that's absolutely right. There's, I mean, there's several kind of reasons why you would want an expanded welfare state that's based on the principles of the universality, meaning that everybody has access to it. It's, it's, it's one, it's precisely what you just said that, that, that actually you're, it's a power question. You working, working class people then have more power to make demands on their employers. It's also a moral, right? You kind of, kind of hinted that at that too. It kind of points to the socialist ideal that most of us have implicitly, right? It's, Mm -hmm. That we want to live in a world in which equality of status and sort of our, our living standards aren't explicitly tied to you know market outcomes or the randomness of financial markets, and there's also practical political questions as well. Like when you when you have, you know, universal, equally accessible uh, welfare state programs, things like universal healthcare, mm-hmm. they're much more durable. They're much more um, lasting 
than than things like means tested programs, which only which only sort of, um, will give benefits to certain groups, often that often because they're below a certain income level, right? There's less right, stigma right. involved in 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 welfare programs where everybody has access and where everybody's who is able to kind of get support from them, and because of that less stigma, they actually they're more durable politically over time. They're they're more lasting. It's precisely why, you know, <laughs> you're not seeing the U.S. government get rid of Social Security. You know, it's kind of described as the third rail of American politics. Touch it and you're dead. It's precisely why, you know, most other uh, advanced capitalist countries of the world have universal um, accessible health care and they're not getting rid of it anytime soon. Not even Paul Ryan has been able to dismantle that. And that guy is, uh, you know, whatever you say about that, uh, that asshole, he, he certainly has uh, a, a powerful and successful strategic vision about how to implement policy, even if he yeah. has to lie, lie, cheat or steal to, to, to accomplish it. I mean, he's hell bent on it. I mean, he, even even Obama uh, had, had had some ideas about dismantling so, uh, Social Security. The, the way they're the way they're doing it is essentially increasing um, the age in which people will start to get their benefits. That's that's mm-hmm. their way of actually retrenching Social Security. Just means that you're going to have to pay more into it over time and you're, you're going to get kind of less out of it. Right, right. It also exempted the baby boomers um, and, mm-hmm. of course, already existing retirees, which, uh, you know, which uh, sort of took their skin out of the game. And uh, a lot of them uh, just couldn't care any less about it. Unfortunately, that's the way the world, that's the way of the world. If it doesn't affect you immediately, you're not as likely to take it out on the politicians of today uh, for for that consequence. But in any case, we're talking around a lot of really, really important things. Let's get back to the question of the transformation here. Mm-hmm. Given that, I think we made the case very successfully, and I think importantly that you're you, we're sort of you're sort of laying out a three step process. Step one is already a comprom- a certain kind of compromised position that we need yeah. to understand, right? As socialists, as progressives today, in order to produce a more uh, rational and compassionate and hum- compassionate and humane uh, system. But let's talk about uh, you know the the real nuts and bolts of this. This was ultimately a, a way of, of capital and, and politicians uh, coming together to decrease the ability of unions to have what would have been a, a, a strike slush fund that would have enabled uh, you know long-lasting strike waves to occur across the country ultimately um, in the 1950s. Tell us a little bit about that and how there were limitations placed on pensions uh, thereafter. Yeah, it's pretty interesting because – what happens is once once labor unions kind of negotiate these pension funds and these plans, they're installed and and actually they become a ma- major source of capital and investment for both U.S. and non-U.S. firms. So by the mid-1970s, pension funds controlled about 25% of all U.S. corporate equity. And you think about that, 25% of all American Jesus. stock, right? That's a massive amount. Yes, right. At the time, it led... Um, there's this management scholar, kind of a management guru, this guy, Peter Drucker. He declared the U.S. the first truly socialist country because, because <laughs> such a significant portion of American capitalism was like, was technically owned by workers. Of course, there's that question of ownership and control, which he didn't really address there. Um, of course. But so, so basically, you have like this massive growth of, of these pension funds, and they're totally tied into American finance, and they're investing in American firms and, and foreign firms. And they're still massive today. Although traditional pension funds today account for about twelve percent of all U.S. corporate equity, um, a huge portion of of 
of stock ownership comes from uh, personal retirement accounts. So things like 401ks and you know Roth IRAs and that sort of thing. So, so you have this growth of these funds, and and initially, unions are actually actually see these funds as as having some possible strategic use, right? Kind of like what you're saying is one a possible slush fund, but but actually the more entertained idea was that you could use these funds to invest in in projects that benefited the social good, you know, like yeah, let's yeah. use let's use our pension fund to invest in worker housing. Let's projects. Let's use our pension fund to invest in projects that only use union labor. You know, they were, they were, they were thinking through these kind of ideas, but politicians very early on, and I'm talking about, you know, the 1945, 1946, 1947, they recognized that if labor was able to control this finance in that way, that they would have a, they would have power that far surpassed anything labor had ever had before. And literally in, in debates, you know, there was con- Congress people would say things like, you know, this is going to become a war chest for labor or, you know, the, like uh, Senator Byrd, uh, a Democrat said, you know, if, if, if labor is able to sort of control these funds, no government will, will ever be able to rein them in. You know, like they'll just they'll become too powerful. A and so Dixie Krat, uh, Dixie Krat, uh, you know, uh, exactly clan, clan adjacent. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Robert, maybe, Robert Byrd, who's maybe who's even lionized. more than adjacent, <laughs> more than adjacent. I'm being polite here. Uh, he's lionized in my part of the country here in the greater northern Virginia, DMV, oh, really? West Virginia corridor that I that I travel in at times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, good, good Democrat there, anti-labor Dixiecrat. Very confusing uh, thing for most people's uh, in terms of their understanding of, uh, of of the way that Democrats are supposed to function. But these were the same people who ushered in, say, Taft Hartley in 1947. Was this yeah. a similar kind of, um, uh, you know, a similar kind of attack on on organized labor that we saw uh, in 1947 with Taft Hartley? Well, actually, and and you know, your listeners probably know, but Taft Hartley is a broader bill that that was. Clearly, anti-labor had several provisions that, that were meant to weaken the power of unions. One of the provisions of Taft-Hartley was uh, related to pension funds and the, and and who would have decision-making power within them, who could control the, f- the, f- the flows of investment. And the provision that they included in Taft-Hartley basically made it so labor union um, representatives couldn't control any more than 50% of a pension board. So basically, uh, employers could either control it all, uh, uh, they could control it totally, but, but unions could not control any more than 50%. And basically what this did was it pushed kind of control over these funds onto the employer side of the, of the bargaining table. And once em- employers got that, they essentially started uh, investing these funds in ways that mimicked the you know standard investment practices of the time. And it, was, it was a time in which Modern portfolio theory was kind of just first taking off, and actually, some of the the companies that had negotiated pension plans, companies like GM, were the first ones to kind of implement mon- modern portfolio theory on a really big scale. Like diversified investment, primarily in stock and equities, less investment in bonds, and so you see a real you see a real shift, quite a quite rapid shift, because politicians know what's up. Uh, yeah, quite rapid shift. Yeah, they're on top of this. <laughs> but you see a you see a rapid shift uh, in, in in the financialization of these funds. Yeah, I think this cuts. I mean, just to, just to, just cut in really quickly. Yeah, I think this is important, right? Because this really does cut against the grain of this idea uh, that that proliferates on all sides of the ideological spectrum. 
this idea that there was a sort of post-war consensus between labor, capital, and the state. This kind of Fordist accord is what it is oftentimes referred to, which, you know, that can be that can be borne out in some of the sort of more corporatist arrangements that happened in that era. Uh, But this is clearly a case where uh, that 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 doesn't hold up like the the, And here's why I bring this in. There's a way in the uh, socialist, particularly Marxist mythology about this era that argues that these these uh, you know these bureaucratic labor uh, members of the labor aristocracy, right? <laughs> to use a Trotskyist sort of uh, epithet, they were just go along, get along types. Uh, they they were ready to sell out their membership, and they didn't care about union strength and and, and so on and so forth. But here's a case where um, you know the the head of of, of very large uh, uh, you know union bodies were advocating for. Uh, certain types of policies and positions that would have provided a great deal of strength to labor in that arrangement. And you saw politicians, you know, really hyperventilating over this possibility and reacting very strongly. And that, so that doesn't seem like a, a very happy, you know, kumbaya kind of moment there, does it? No. Um, well, I mean, the first thing I'd say is, is that the notion of a post-war labor capital accord where we kind of had this harmony for 30 years or 20 years or however you want to sort of, uh, you know, however you want to, um, whatever time period you want to put it in, uh, I don't think could be anything further. Uh, there, you can, you're not going to find anything further from the truth. But I, I think it's mm-hmm. totally a bogus idea. Right. And that and that actually the vast majority of, of gains that occur in that period are a result of strike action and a result of actual labor agitation that that. It's precisely because labor has the, the has the you know the strength and the sort of organizational capacity to sort of force management to do things that it does things. The management isn't sort of like saying, "Okay, we're in this post-war period now. We're going we're just gonna we're just gonna always give you wage increases with productive productivity increases." No, that happened right. because of labor action. The question on the labor leadership, I think it's it's a slightly maybe a little more mixed than kind of what what you're saying. Right. I'm bending the stick pretty far yeah, in one direction, you're going, admittedly <laughs> so. And I, let me tell you why, because I think I, what I want to cut against here, I'm certainly not upholding uh, Walter Ruther as kind of like, you know, the militant democratic, uh, you know, trade unionist par excellence <laughs> or whatever, because <laughs> that he certainly was not. Uh, and these people should be challenged and criticized. But what I'm cut, what I'm more interested in bending the stick away from in that formulation that I just put forward so I can be really explicit about my aims is this wing of, of, of the left uh, today, uh, particularly the academic left, that points to that mythologized uh, post-war consensus to try to show that labor has always has been bought off for a very long time. And therefore, it's just, you know, uh, uh, labor unions are obsolete and they only ever lead to this kind of conciliatory uh, selling out of oppressed and exploited people. That, that's the narrative that I'm trying to cut against uh, in my admittedly uh, far too kind conception of, of Ruther and, and some of the other trade union elites. Yeah, I just I think that's totally nonsensical. Yeah, you can in, in all the in all the places and all the in all the cities in which we have a sort of black middle class in all in all the in, in all the current places where sort of, um, you know, immigrant workers are able to sort of work, be, work and sort of get a halfway decent wage and a benefit. It's been because of a labor movement. 
Um, and that's not to say that there wasn't that, that there hasn't been serious instances of of racism and exclusion in the labor movement. Far from it. But but the the labor movement has been critical to the uplift of of you know historically marginalized and oppressed people in the U.S. I think. But going back to the the issue you raised about the labor leadership after World War II, that absolutely right that sort of they saw these as a potential source of power. But after Taft Hartley, many of those same officials, union officials who were who were trying to control these funds basically sort of said, all right, well, it's, it's pretty much out of our hands now. Yeah. Um, and, and they, and instead of primarily agitating over control, they agitated over employer contributions and, and things like that, where, where you don't see that happen is in, in, in sectors of the labor movement that, that have what are called multi-employer plans. Th- these are basically unions that are in, in, in industries like construction, um, in industries, uh, where there's a lot of small employers and the and the unions are negotiating with a lot of small employers for a, for a large body of uh, employees in those because of the particular characteristics of those those industries and we might be getting too too into the weeds here but because of the particular characteristics actually they retain some control over these funds well into the 1970s and actually are are using them in ways that sort of go against Wall Street standards sometimes ways that aren't great you know, like the main one, the main reason why sort of uh, the U.S. state was going after Hoffa was was because of the way that the central state's pension fund was investing its money in sort of like you know casinos and things like that. And the um, mob, you know, maybe maybe that's why he ended up with uh, concrete shoes. If you know what I'm saying, or perhaps he did. We don't know. Right. We don't know. Right. I don't know. Right. I, I actually I actually brought you know I I, w- I was talking about this to somebody who was a a, a teamster, uh, kind of a you know a kind of part of the mainstream Hoppe supporter and I, and I kind of brought up the way in which this the, their pension fund was invested and they, they were they were totally outraged that I would say something negative about Jimmy Hoffa. <laughs> but <laughs> you're lucky they didn't uh, put out a hit on you, yeah. you know? <laughs> I, I I think they're about to pop me in the lip actually. Yeah. But yeah. but you know there there's so there's differences between the the ways in which different union officials kind of approach their funds and and many do actually kind of capitulate on this issue. And it's not until the 1970s that the, the AFL-CIO kind of commissions a big study of their pension funds and how to invest that we get a renewed interest in in uh, in these issues. So there was a good 20-year period where, where a lot of unions like UAW, steelworkers, and other big industrial unions like that were kind of taking a hands-off approach to, to, the, to, the, to the, um, the funds. But what's I think what's one thing that somebody might say, and I think and indeed, something that people have told me is that, well, okay, yeah, they didn't control these funds, but if you look at them, you know, union pension funds went from having twenty-six billion dollars in assets in nineteen fifty-two to the year before the the crisis in two thousand eight having ten point eight trillion. So obviously, that investment was doing something, right? Like this, yeah, these pay, right. these paid for people's retirement. They paid. They, you know, the funds grew. So, so obviously following Wall Street was the right decision, right? That's the, that's the argument you'll get against this more activist and in, of investing approach. But I think that's wrong. And that's, and that's because not only did this investment in financial markets tie, tie retirement livelihoods to financial markets themselves, but there's a deeper, there was a deeper issue with this, this shift, which is that Many of the funds themselves were investing directly into anti-labor corporations, right? Like 
the United Auto Workers, International Union of Electrical Workers, they had millions of dollars, for instance, invested in Texas Instruments, which was a non-union company that both of them were trying to organize but couldn't organize, right? <laughs> yeah, very, <laughs> like, very anti-labor, uh, powerful corporation there. So, I mean, yeah, so, so there, there's there's they're, 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 they're tied up in conflicted sort of ways in terms of who, who they're investing in and, and who they're, what, what political projects they're implicitly or even ex- explicitly supporting by doing so. It's very similar uh, to, you know, the way that, you know, say um, our own retirement plans are, are funding uh, atrocities uh, both at home and abroad. But it also seems to me, I mean, you're, you're very right to point to that, but I wonder your take on this. But, but even I think at a more deeper level, uh, that rebuttal to your argument, which you just sort of laid out, more fundamentally, it accepts the paradigm shift that uh, that occurred in this second step that you lay out, which is that the most important thing to do now that we have these funds is to increase them, and that that that's the goal of of say you know a, a labor union rather than you know um, challenging for for uh, you know power at the point of production mm-hmm. and producing. Uh, you know, largesse for social investment and an investment in, in other working class uh, oriented kinds of projects. And so it seems to me that that rebuttal, it certainly fails on the level that you just raised, right? It's just, it's contradictory. Like, well, why are we investing in anti-labor activities? But more fundamentally, we need to challenge this idea that this is all that labor unions ought to be doing or should be doing. They have a much more, as, as you right, rightfully point out, they have a much more uh, a broader promise which, as I said, these these uh, lefty scholars, for the most part, out there who crap all over unions and their emancipatory potential, are just completely, uh, you know, I- unable to recognize. Yeah, that's that's right. But I, I think you can even you can even talk about it in a slightly in a slightly different way, which is that which is to say that the way in which uh, these funds invested, and this is this is we're getting we're getting right to the heart of of the issue of neoliberalism and sort of financialization, the way in which these funds invested was that they prioritized investment in those companies that, that, that were more profitable, those companies that were bringing back higher stock shares. Mm, I see. Right? I see and, and, and part and parcel of that <laughs> is, is investing in companies that are, are looking to sort of cut labor costs yep, that are looking yep. to sort of uh, cut, cut off parts of their operations and move them to other places where they where it's, where it's cheaper are looking to sort of incorporate labor saving technologies so, I mean, if you think about that, the fact that pension funds controlled 25% of all American corporate equity in, the, in 1975, the sort of the, the you know, uh, uh, the dawn of neoliberalism, like they themselves were part and parcel of the race, the race to the bottom in labor standards in our, in our, in both in our country, but, but elsewhere as well. They were pouring gasoline on the fires of, uh, you know, neoliberalism. I mean, they were accelerating these processes. That's really now. That's an interesting uh, sort of like uh, characterization that you produced there, and that like that twenty five percent is a very um, you know influential sum. Yeah, in no doubt. And in so far as these companies that are the most profitable are the ones who are most successfully implementing these neoliberal strategies, uh, labor's largesse had a way of uh, accelerating that 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 transformation. Yeah. Now imagine now imagine a world in which. Workers finance actually invests in in companies that have that that have union represent representation or only invest in companies that that um, 
have uh, provide a, a sort of solid living wage. You know, it's it's you can imagine another world, right? You can imagine a world in which this 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 finance is actually used to benefit people. Right. I think, I mean, that's a really crucial component of, of expanding our political imagination and, and giving us a kind of her, a broad horizon, uh, you know, strategically and, and policy uh, wise, uh, that is in terms of what we should try to be try to be aiming for. And um, unfortunately, uh, because of the blindness uh, towards labor or outright in, anti- antipathy, I would say, towards labor that many on the left have today, uh, we don't allow ourselves uh, to imagine these possibilities. All right, so we've we've covered the first two steps of this transformation that you outline in your excellent book, uh, which were you know along the way they were kind of fraught with contradictions and historical contingencies uh, that have to do with the management of uh, political and economic crisis throughout the history of capitalism in in America and the post war era, which brings us to the most. Uh, recent one, which we've kind of hinted at uh, this prelude to neoliberalism. Uh, you know, this is the model of the 401k, the, the Roth IRA, the the, the thing that uh, uh, most of us at this point, like wish we had, right? Like that's how far we've come. Uh, <laughs> so spell, t- talk to us about how this final uh, transformation occurred. Of course, there's a lot of overlap here, but but what really kicked this off? Yeah, well, I mean, if, if folks don't know what, you know, 401k is basically a personal investment account. And of, oftentimes what will happen is your employer will contribute a little bit and you'll contribute a little bit as well. And you'll need to manage that account uh, yourself. You'll need to sort of, you sort of dictate the, you know, how the assets or how the investments are kind of laid out in your portfolio. And, and that's something you need to kind of pay attention to over the lifetime of that account. Um, it's very different from a defined benefit uh, because uh, for a defined benefit plan, those plans that they won after World War II, the, the benefit was kind of preset. You knew what you would get when you were to retire. Today, we live in a world where if you're lucky enough to have one of these, what you get when you retire is going to be dependent entirely on how much that fund has accumulated over its lifetime. So if you're one of those uh, unlucky schmucks who was trying to uh, retire in 2008, 2009, you're not going to have a whole lot in your account, right? And there's really no way of kind of making up for that. The employer is only sort of um, on the hook for those contributions. Well, of course the there is. You could be a greeter at uh, Walmart until you die. Exactly, right? Yeah, that's, a, <laughs> that's, a, that's a viable strategy. Like, you know, there's, that, there's nothing wrong with that, that world. You know, instead of playing with your grandchildren, you're you know, greeting schmucks at the door of, of Walmart until you're 95 anyway. <laughs> right. I mean, the unfortunate thing about 2008 is that it put a lot of people in a double disadvantage in, in that, one, they were, they, they were losing uh, their retirement, but two, they also couldn't find work, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. So they were kind of uh, screwed both ways. Right at that point, you they would have been happy to uh, to to not have employer uh, provided uh, health care. They just wanted a freaking job, you know. I mean, yeah. that, that's it's it's like yeah. I mean, it's indicative of how far we've come. We're talking about the latest phase in the degradation of 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 welfare provisioning in in recent history, and yet we're at a phase where most people don't even have that. Right. That's yeah. why it's so hard to talk about this stuff in a big way. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the, the book really needs a you know really needs a fourth one. Right. The move Jesus. to nothing. Right. We, I, yeah. I need to I need to write another chapter. The dis, the descent into barbarism. I don't know. That'd be a real bummer, man. It would get real yeah. dark, uh, dark <laughs> in a way. We, we would all need to go have a drink afterwards. It doesn't end well, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Jesus. 
So how how do how exactly do we get these things? Um, you, usually, when we think about neoliberalism, Reagan, the Reagan era, uh, we get this we get this idea of deregulation, and that and that neoliberalism is simply the result of the state kind of withdrawing from the market and sort of letting firms kind of do what they need to do. Uh, but the the result of four hundred one ks is actually uh, from more regulation in the market. And how that how that kind of happens, and kind of connecting back into our discussion a little bit of how crises pushes policymakers to intervene for capitalism. What happened was was that in the 1970s you got this kind of growing inflation crisis, uh, which rose uh, at its peak, I think, to nearly 14 percent inflation, March 1980, and uh, in the Carter administration uh, before Reagan. There was this real, real uh, sense that they needed to actually solve this, uh, solve this crisis. The inflation crisis was really, really important because it, you know, it undermined exchange rates, it taxed capital stock, it bankrupted the thrift industry, it, uh, you know, undermined government securities, eroded wealth. It pushed uh, you workers know. into strike waves to try to keep up uh, their wages and benefits with the yep. rates of inflation. Exactly. And, stuff, you know? right? and weakened the the U.S. versus trading partner. I mean, it just there were lots of things that were problematic about it, and Wall Street. Was especially unhappy about it because if you're holding assets and dollars and inflation is increasingly going up, that's that's going to drastically hurt your portfolio. So, so there was this real effort to sort of figure out what is what's going on, what's the result of this inflation, and politicians developed theories, and this goes all the way back to a 1970 OECD OECD report uh, titled "Inflation: The Present Problem," where they developed theories of of inflation and and how they sort of made sense of it was what they called uh, the cost push theory of inflation, which was right. basically this idea that inflation was not about the amount of money in the, in the economy, right? It's not like the Milton Friedman thing. It's actually, it's actually all about class struggle. Yep. And, and the growing inflation in the U.S. was, politicians argued, a result of labor um, and, and their ability to keep on increasing the wage, right, in, nego- in negotiation. Um, in, in bargaining. And so, and so starting with Carter, you know, democratic, uh, uh, president policymakers and, and the federal and the federal reserve, you know, explicitly saw this issue as being an issue of class struggle and, and tried to break the, the ability of labor to actually win these new contracts with higher wages. So you get, you get in that period, the Volcker shock, you get a, a, a number of things that happened, happened trying to break the power of labor. One of the, one of the many things that the Reagan administration did, in addition to, you know, the Volcker shocks, was increased the increased uh, um, regu- regulation on these pension funds. They, they increased regulation on primarily the, the, the funds that were controlled by unions like the Teamsters, um, by other kind of construction uh, unions. These were the unions that that the state saw as 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 being as driving up the wage, the unions they saw as kind of being the primary drivers of um, of this inflation. Right. And so, what's what's kind of interesting about the Reagan era is that usually we think it's it's an era of kind of deregulation, but actually in the area of pensions, pension regulation increases quite dramatically. In 1974, there's the passage of this law called the Employee um, Retirement Income Security Act, which kind of lays down all these rules for um, 
pension um, plans and how to how to manage them, how to invest them, the kind of requirements that they that that need to to guide their their operation. And during the Reagan administration, he actually complicates and increases these rules. And those rules get com- more and more complicated. And the first the first person to begin to liberalize those rules is actually Clinton in 1996. And so what happens, and they're doing this actually very explicitly because they want to weaken these unions that have control over these funds. I mean, they, they say this, right? It, um, it's not like they're, they're not trying to hide the fact. We don't have to read between the lines. Mike Beggs uh, raised uh, a, a couple weeks ago. Uh, listeners will remember perhaps that uh, despite all of the kind of like monetary theory and the posturing of, say, Milton Friedman about uh, inflation and the money supply, as you just mentioned, uh, if you read the policy documents and even the the popular press in this moment, folks were very clear about uh, the class struggle element and the need to defeat uh, labor militancy in order to address this inflation crisis, right? And, yeah, and labor, no, labor was just not up to the task of pushing back uh, against that onslaught it's no it's no conspiracy it's 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 plainly <laughs> evident you all you have to do is look at you know go look at a newspaper from that yeah. period and read the comments it's funny if you raise that in a, in, a, in a classroom or in a public forum today they'll just call you a crazy conspiratorial marxist and it's like right oh, i i read uh you know the the washington post in yeah. 1978 <laughs> I, I read that's what how the, i know yeah i read what they said you know um <laughs> So, so what you know, th- this this complication of rules basically the effect of this is kind of an unintended effect. Basically, it increases the cost of 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 having one of these defined benefit plans, and at the same time that the cost is actually increasing, labor uh, labor power is decreasing. So, emergent sectors of the economy in places like services uh, in, in the nineteen nineteen eighties, early nineteen nineties, increasingly non labor. You're getting sort of uh, um, Union density go into a decline, and and what happens is that business businesses just make the the rational decision to to not offer defined benefit plans, and those ones that do grab onto this idea of the defined contribution in four hundred one k, and it kind of it kind of is a result of the combination of their increased costs and the and the weakening of 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 unions uh, in in new sectors of the of the economy. So, 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 uh, you know, this, this result that we live in now, this 401k ish world, and I say ish because most people don't have one is, is kind of check the, your 401k privilege, bro. I know. I know <laughs> such a brochalist with your, uh, you know, your, your, uh, Roth IRA over here. You know what I mean? <laughs> I got a pension like a, like a year ago and I, I really feel so privileged now. It's, it's I'm calling I've been, you I've been studying this stuff for 10 years without a pension. <laughs> So the, I mean, the, the result is essentially this kind of un, unintended consequence of the state kind, essentially trying to govern poor capitalism. And that's, and that's where we are. That's where we are today. We're, we're, we're in a world where uh, 401ks are kind of thought of as a, as a privilege when, you know, if we would have, if we would have just reversed the, the clock a little bit, it would have been like an outlandish thing. Jesus, man. This is like, we could, we could come up with like a, a really epic, uh, you know, a thriller 
a historic, uh, like an alternative, like sci-fi historical drama, like where, you know, we, like you and I, we hop, be like a buddy comedy. Like you and I hop, you and I <laughs> hop into a time machine right? and, and we like travel back to 1944 and like we warn, uh, you know, the labor leaders and the policymakers like, don't do it. If you do this, we're all going to be fucked 75 years from now, you know, like, and, uh, and then there's this alternative historical trajectory and it's, it's magical. Uh, yeah, no, we sh- we should uh, we should talk to the studios about that. I think I, that there's a there's a yeah. need for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it can't have a happy ending. Like something really, there has to be a big a big twist at the end. Like, oh, but what you didn't know was that you just like spawned like a you know baby Hitler part two or something. Right, know, right. Unbeknownst yeah. to yourself, right. The un- uh, unintended effects of dealing with the timeline. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. We, we we'll, we'll have to workshop that one. I'll put it up to some writers, see what they can come up with. But uh, but but I mean, you know, half kidding, half serious here, right? Like yeah. you can see how these uh, uh, early moves really set the stage. Now, of course, this isn't a, this isn't a functionalist, functionalist argument uh, saying that this proceeds with a certain kind of necessity because that's what the capitalist state does and therefore, you know, uh, we can't engage with policy or the state. Uh, we need to sort of like besiege it and overthrow it in the way that uh, Ed Rooksby and I uh, critiqued last week. But it does mean that like, you know, we need to learn uh, the sort of under, underlying sort of logical moves here. And, and I think the story that you tell is so important because – you know, it can proceed in a, an increasingly barbarous trajectory, despite the good intentions of certain types of people along the way. Um, so it's a real, it's it's a potential, a tra- it's a tragic narrative where, despite maybe the good intentions of certain people along the way, we still nonetheless uh, ended up where we are are today. You know, so we need we need to know. Not only have the right kind of uh, impulses about you know how we want pe- to treat people, but we need to know uh, the trajectories of these policies and these uh, strategic visions that we have. And, and this is a really, really excellent test case, I think, in history to, to kind of provide us with that framework. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, I think I think when you look at policymaking, I didn't I didn't go into this too much in the in in the first and second sort of episodes or, or shifts that we were talking about. But if you look you kind of find a somewhat consistent result. And that, that is that politicians, and it doesn't matter what their ideology is. It doesn't matter what party they're from. Politicians are, are going to govern for capitalism that they're going to govern to promote growth. They're going to govern to sort of try to see um, profit increase. And they're not doing that necessarily because there's, they're sort of, you know, uh, greedy capitalists themselves it's, it's the constraint of the position they want to keep their jobs if they if they don't govern for capitalism uh they could potentially face an investment strike um they, they'd lose government revenue from from ta- from lost taxes people would sort of lose their job and they'd they'd eventually get voted out of office right and so so one kind of thing that i think neo-marxist in the 1970s and 1980s got really right was that this structural constraint on the state is is incredibly important and it's persistent and it's it exists everywhere you find capitalist democracy uh, coexist. Um, but what what I'm trying to say in addition to that is that there are there are multiple paths, there are multiple avenues, there are multiple ways in which um, states can govern for capitalism. There's a there's a funny kind of um, article. In an academic journal written by a guy named Mark Blythe, and and the the title of it is something along the lines of "Structures don't come with instruction sheets." 
right? You have to, you, you actually have to figure it out. Like you actually have to figure out how it is you are going to govern for capitalism. And, and the way that sort of policymakers figure it out, the way they find the right path, that has everything to do with the contingencies of class struggle, the balance of class, class forces, both within the state itself, but also outside of the state. And so it's, it's a, it's a sort of, it's a perspective, I think, that, 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 that says, yes, we need to take structure seriously. We need to take capitalism seriously and how it affects policymaking. But we also need to agitate and organize because that shapes policymaking as well, right? <laughs> that, that's something that can, that can push policymakers towards the New Deal, for instance, or towards uh, something quite different. Right. Unfortunately, uh, you know, anyone who's ever heard my show will know a consistent theme that crops up here among the guests that I select to bring on and, and sort of, uh, provide their expert knowledge is that, uh, um, you know, leftists, unfortunately, socialists, Marxists, progressives, however you want to categorize the, that, that, that collective, that coalition in the United States often have a very dismissive attitude about a lot of these, uh, you know, possibilities for reform and change in policies because they say like yeah well of course uh, you know politicians do that it, it's it's capitalism like what did you think was going to happen you know and and not only is that does that lead to a certain kind of paralysis uh, but it's just not an accurate reflection of the field of struggle and the way that history unfolds in very contentious like uh, uh, very contradictory and um, you know contingency laden ways and i think that's that's the real uh, contribution of, of the real theoretical and strategic contribution of this uh, history of, of of transformation of pensions uh, really provides for us yeah um, i agree <laughs> <laughs> yeah i agree i did do that thing that thing i did was great wasn't it <laughs> i mean you kind of that was kind of hard to respond to i don't <laughs> uh, sorry that, yeah i do i, I sort of like I, kind of talk and then i trail off and then uh, <laughs> listeners i hey, I, 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 I the listeners I, at this I, point they either love it or hate it but either way they're fucking stuck with me so you know what, what are you gonna do no it wasn't it's, because you're my show off. i, I just, can do I what i want. want i just didn't want to self-congratulate you know we have this uh in inborn protestant modesty or something like did, that. did you give a kanye smile though like on the other end of the line like i can't see you so it's like you know did you did you give a little kanye smile like you know when i said that like yeah, yeah a little a little smile and a nod yeah yeah that's all I, that's all i wanted Anyway, I think we've brought this to a really successful conclusion. We ended up, uh, you know, with a more theoretical vision uh, that, that uh, I think we, Ed Rooksby and I really produced a lot of. It's very complimentary. Uh, your book and your framework is very complimentary of that. The, uh, you know, the importance of looking at the development of institutions and state actors and the contingency and contradictions and all the rest of it. Um, the emphasis on uh, political and economic crisis. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a certain kind of strategic vision that requires us to, uh, pull back on some of these, some of these, um, some of these trends and, uh, try to dismantle the neoliberal, uh, you know, uh, regime of, of capitalist accumulation that we're all sort of trapped underneath right now. So, uh, we're going to get to more of this next week. Um, it's not necessarily a part two, but we're going to be covering some of the similar topics. You are, tell us, a, give us a quick little scoop. You are currently researching a book that's under contract from Verso uh, about finance and uh, the socialization of, of, of financial you know, you know, investment. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's, it's kind of in the early stages in terms of the writing. So I'm, I'm still definitely thinking through some of these issues and I'm looking forward to talking, talking with you about it because it's going to be 
you know, thinking through some of them with you. But it'll basically be a kind of a bird's eye, uh, introductory sort of book on finance capitalism that you know any anybody can read. Uh, that's that that'll be sort of accessible to sort of uh, you know activists. That that not only sort of gives an overview about what finance capitalism is, but talks about how talks about finance capitalism from a from a more political perspective. Like how how should we think about finance capitalism politically, not just in macroeconomic terms, which is I think the default way that we on the left tend to think about these things, but how should we think about it strategically, politically? How does it affect um, uh, uh, political? Um, how does it affect modern uh, democracies, for instance? Uh, and then, it, and then it kind of it sort of goes through some of those those kind of overview kind of uh, descriptive uh, issues, and it will end with a kind of proposal uh, for democratizing finance and why that's important, both strategically, but also um, for realizing our socialist vision. So it's hopefully kind of a short, accessible book. We'll see. It seems like it's it seems like there's going to be a lot there, but I'll, I'm going to try to keep the word uh, count down. So this is a pop. This is a popular book meant for activists and and people like that uh, as, as, as a kind of uh, instruction manual, a how to guide, if you will, to overthrow our neoliberal hellscape. Yeah, I mean, well, one thing that <laughs> What's your the, subtitle, the, by the way, exactly. One thing that the left is is in no shortage of is large tomes about finance. And so, <laughs> what what I what I want to do is is basically do an anti tome. You know, like have have something that's accessible that's not so that's not totally entrenched in like debates going back to the 1800s, you know, like I, I, I want something that, something that, um, grandma could read. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. <laughs> Buy You heard it here. Buy it for your grandmother next Christmas. Uh, <laughs> this is going to be the gift of uh 2018's Christmas season. Yeah. Right. So yeah, everybody stay tuned for, uh, you know, episode two with, uh, Mike McCarthy, we're going to be talking explicitly about that project. It's going to be some overlap, but folks who heard my interview with Mike Beggs and particularly the B side over there will know that the political component of these processes of financialization are just as important as the kind of like dry economic ones. And so we're going to get into the details of that. Mike, thanks so much for joining us on the Dead Punnet Society. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was a, it was a pleasure. And that is the episode for this week. Thanks again to Michael McCarthy, sociologist at Marquette University. Everybody should check out his book. He has a book on pensions. This is where he developed a lot of the ideas and researched uh, some of the history and the thesis of his uh, claims that he's made in the episode. It's called Dismantling Solidarity, Capitalist Politics and American Pensions Since the New Deal. That is out from Cornell University Press in 2017. I will provide a link to that book in the show notes so that you can pick it up for yourself. You know, it is uh, out from an academic press, but it's a very easy read for anyone, uh, you know, who's not sort of uh, engaged in these dusty, dusty academic books. And uh, for those of you playing the Dead Punnett Society drinking game, I'll just simply note that I said dusty twice. So that's two shots. Uh, Enjoy. Anyway, uh, next week, I've got Michael McCarthy back on the program. We're doing a two-part series here. We're going to be talking more explicitly about socialist strategy and capitalist finance. This is part three of my Finance for Regular-Ass People series. 
some of the themes overlap with what you just heard in this week's episode, but uh, it you know, was enough for me to think that I really needed to make this a distinct episode for the masses. I didn't want to bury this on the Patreon page. Uh, so, you know, apologies to my VIPs out there who, who wanted exclusive access to this, but I had to give it to the masses. And I'm sure you all actually really do appreciate that since you want to get these politics out there. So head over to patreon.com slash dead punnets, support the new left agenda. There won't be a B side this week, but as I teased in the opener to the show, there's going to be a lot more content coming your way soon, but we have to have your financial contributions and your support to be able to pull that off. So head over to Patreon and subscribe today. Next week, I got Michael McCarthy back in his sultry, sexy Midwestern voice. <laughs> Until then, Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this you crazy mother. Millennials like socialism. Millennials like socialism.